Hello, and welcome to A Health Podacy. I'm your host, Alan Weil. When medical offices shut down due to the COVID pandemic, and people were encouraged or required to avoid public spaces, there was a dramatic and rapid increase in the use of telemedicine. Providers quickly initiated or scaled up their telehealth capabilities, and patients found themselves relying on technologies that relatively few had used before then. Now, telemedicine has the potential to open up access to care, particularly to people who are geographically isolated or have mobility limitations, but it can also exacerbate existing inequities given its reliance upon broadband internet access and other technologies. Whether telemedicine expands or narrows care inequities is the topic of today's episode of A Health Policy. I'm speaking with Caitlin Hicks, Associate Professor of Surgery at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Hicks and co-authors published a paper in the May 2022 issue of Health Affairs examining the impact of Medicare's pandemic-era telemedicine coverage waiver on utilization by geographic area. They found that Medicare's telemedicine access expansion increased utilization overall, and that those beneficiaries in areas of greater deprivation, as measured by the Area Deprivation Index, had greater odds of utilization than those who live in areas with more resources. We'll discuss these findings and their implications in today's episode. Dr. Hicks, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Dr. Wheel, for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. This is a great topic, and we're, of course, living through a natural experiment as uh, the rules of telemedicine change dramatically and their use change dramatically. So in order to set the stage, I think we need to have a picture of sort of the before and the after, the old days when telemedicine was barely used at all, and after the COVID pandemic hit, when it exploded. Can you just explain a little bit what the status of telemedicine was before COVID and how it changed when the pandemic hit. Yes, happy to do that. Um, Before I get too far uh, into the weeds here, I do want to give a shout out to the Society for Bedside Medicine. It's a group um, that's dedicated to sort of patient access to care and physical examination and diagnostic skill sets, and they were the um, source of funding behind this work. So big thank you to them. Um, To get to your question here, sort of, you know, how telemedicine existed before COVID and sort of what's changed. In the pre-COVID timeframe, telemedicine did exist, but it was really only available for certain facility types, um, limited to home-based patients that couldn't have mobility, and then limited to patients that were located in extremely rural locations that don't have access to, uh, for example, like secondary or tertiary um, type experts. Um, And the post-COVID pandemic, the concept uh, behind the expansion of telemedicine was to provide telemedicine services to all patients, regardless of where they're located or their mobility, with the thought that we're going to offload hospitals and clinics uh, with patient uh, burdens, especially since we were trying to social distance, especially in the early phases of the pandemic. So there were these rule changes that basically eliminated a lot of the restrictions on who could bill for and use telemedicine. Your study focuses on the relationship between the telemedicine use and this, this concept of uh, called the Area Deprivation Index. So this is an established index, but my guess is not everyone's heard of it. So um, can you tell me a little bit about what it is, what it measures, and why it was important in your study? 
Sure, yes. The Area Deprivation Index, or the ADI, it's a composite measure of socioeconomic status. So in a lot of studies, people measure socioeconomic status using one measure. So they use you know, patient income or payer status, so what type of insurance you have, or access to health care, or if they've had a primary care visit, or, or all these sort of different surrogates that go together. The um, ADI is a more composite measure. It incorporates household income, education, employment, and housing quality. It's determined actually at the census block group level, so by zip code, um, but it's supposed to provide a holistic assessment of geographic socioeconomic disadvantage based on where patients live. So it's not necessarily applicable at an individual person level, but it's judged based on the zip code in which that person lives, and you make some suppositions about sort of their access to care and the socioeconomic status that they live within. And as you used it in the study, uh, it's a continuous measure, but you divided it up into grouping so you could analyze people by the level of deprivation where they lived? Yes, we put it into quartiles. So there's a few different ways to use this metric. Um, You can use it on a 0 to 100 scale as a continuous metric. Um, Some work has been done out of the University of Wisconsin, um, which I've worked with in similar measures in the past, where basically you group sort of the 0 to 25 quartile is your quartile 1, and then 26 to 50 is 2, 51 to 75 is 3, and then above 75 is 4. And the concept is, is that as your ADI goes up in your um, socioeconomic deprivation also goes up. So people who are in quartile one are socioeconomically advantaged. So they have higher income or more employment, um, sort of better better housing quality. And then the people in ADI fourth quartile are really sort of at the low end of that. So they have lower income, lower levels of education, poorer housing quality. Um, Different ways to do it. We actually, in sort of designing the study, I'm most familiar with using the quartile metric. And I think it sort of gives you a nice holistic grouping. And it's a little bit easier to interpret across groups as opposed to individual changes in ADI percentile, uh, but certainly you could do it either way and, and the results really don't change no matter how you look at it. It just makes it a little bit easier to talk about. But the key concept here is that you're not looking at individual uh, metric. You're looking at sort of the context in which someone lives and you're trying to determine whether or not there are differences in the uptake of telemedicine based on that uh, deprivation uh, index. So Tell me what you found. We found, and you know, sort of to set the stage here, so I'm a vascular surgeon by practice. I see a lot of vascular surgery patients, and this telemedicine thing became a big thing, and our clinics were sort of closing. We couldn't see people in person, but a lot of them still had follow-up needs. So I was trying to do some telemedicine, and I actually came into this project with a totally different hypothesis than what we found. I thought that people who were from more deprived populations would not be using telemedicine, because anecdotally, that's what I thought I was experiencing. And so that's of where I set out to really study this on a sort of numbers type level to see if that was true. And it turns out that I was wrong. Um, So actually what we found is that in the pre-COVID era, there was really no difference in the use of telemedicine between um, ADI groups. So regardless of how socioeconomically deprived or advantaged you were, everybody used telemedicine at approximately the same level. And it was a really low level, like 0.4% of people were having outpatient uh, telemedicine visits during that time. And then in the post-pandemic era, the use of telemedicine increased for everybody, right? So 10% of outpatient visits became by telemedicine, which is still a really small proportion of outpatient visits. But if you look at it as compared to less than half of a percent before COVID up to 10% after COVID, that's a huge change. But what we saw is that the uptake of telemedicine actually increased way more in the deprived groups compared to the non-deprived groups. So people with an ADI of four, those living in deprived areas of the country, were actually using telemedicine more than their um, less deprived counterparts. 
So as you say, this isn't the hypothesis you had going in. So what you find is that as a share of people who get services, the share goes up more for people in more deprived areas than people in less deprived areas. Is that a kind of the right shorthand for the finding? Yeah, that's a great summary. Um, you know, overall, basically, people in the more deprived areas were about 13% more likely to use telemedicine at least once in the post-COVID era compared to people that were the least deprived. So I'm really interested because I, you know, we, I don't think of a surgeon as the first person I would expect to do this kind of analysis. So I'm really interested in your going in assumption based on your experience and what you're hearing from other people. Because I have to say, I think most people, if they read the first part of this study, would expect exactly what you expected, which is lower uptake uh, for people in more deprived areas. So tell me a little why you had that hypothesis. I work in inner city Baltimore, so it is actually tend to be a relatively deprived area, but I have patients that I see from outside the city as well that are less deprived areas. And I felt sort of anecdotally that the, the patients I was treating that were more deprived were having a lot of difficulty with the use of telemedicine. We were having a hard time getting them to schedule, a hard time getting them to agree, and then a hard time ex- having them successfully execute that. You know what you experience anecdotally, and this is true many times, is not necessarily what you ex- is real. In if you look at the data in a bigger picture, and that's sort of where I wanted to go. I'm a very data driven person, so I wanted to see if that was true. Because sort of the next step for me was if that was true, I wanted to figure out how I could make it better. And we can talk later about sort of where this made me take my practice because these findings were different. But that's sort of how that was driven from that standpoint. Yeah, it's so interesting. I mean, the salience of certain experiences can distort our sense of whether what we're observing is actually representative of the larger numbers. And it's great that you were willing to test that hypothesis. Well, I do want to have exactly the conversation you mentioned, which is, so what are the implications of this? Uh, We'll get into that after we take a short break. And we're back. I'm speaking with Dr. Caitlin Hicks about a paper describing Medicare beneficiaries' increased use of telemedicine during the COVID-19 pandemic and how that's associated with uh, area deprivation index. Before the break, we were talking about how it affected uh, the findings of the paper, affected your sense of what you needed to do in your practice. Before we take that topic up directly, Let's just spend a moment, if you don't mind, on this broader question of the opportunity that telemedicine creates to reduce access disparities, which we know exist uh, quite significantly, but also the possibility that it could increase them um, if done wrong. Uh, what, what from your research and from your experience, again, telemedicine was, use was very low before COVID, but What's your sense about whether it's the great equalizer or something that actually increases the so-called digital divide? Yeah, I think that's the tough question, right? So I do think that one thing that CMS did really, really well when they provided this telemedicine waiver is they allowed physicians to provide telemedicine using either video-to-video interactions or phone interactions. And I can tell you on a personal level, a lot of the video, video to interactions just don't work. For people who live in places that don't have Wi-Fi or have poor connections, it's really difficult to get functional video and it makes the visit useless because you're spending the whole time trying to be like, can you see me? Can you hear me? It's very challenging. 
However, if you have the ability, and, and this is what CMS allowed, is to actually have a phone conversation for people with some of these follow-ups. Now, you're certainly missing out on some of the, sort of the physical exam and the nuances of seeing the patient. But in certain sort of limited situations, if you're going over test results, going over labs, checking in on sort of how the patient's status is, that can be really effective to do on the phone. And most people do have access to a phone. So I think the reason I didn't see the divide that I was expecting is because that part was allowed. And we wouldn't, we did not distinguish in this because in that phase of the acute sort of post-COVID era, uh, CMS was allowing telemedicine by either video or phone. That's such an interesting uh, point you're making. And, you know, as there are discussions going forward about how much to continue to rely on telemedicine, my sense is the willingness to continue to support audio only is not as great as the willingness to support the video and and uh, so some of the lessons that we learned from this period may not be applicable if the rules change. That's completely true. And I suspect, you know, if we were making everybody have telemedicine visits by video, that the results that I present here would probably not be the same. And I know CMS has tried to do some things to make video telemedicine more accessible to people. They've tried to provide broadband access in places that don't have it, and they've tried to sort of do waivers for the copays so that people can spend money in other ways. But the reality is, is if patients don't have access to Wi-Fi or video-capable devices, then they're not going to be able to have a telemedicine visit that requires video. And I do have to say, even those of us who have all of those things who've worked remotely for a couple of years, we also spent a huge amount of time on technology. So it's not as if just having Wi-Fi solves all the problems. It's uh, it's so so thorny here. Well, you mentioned that this affected how you approach your practice. You know, when I read the paper, I'd say the findings are encouraging relative to what I would have expected in the sense that, you know, you sort of go in and you think, oh boy, this is going to show uh, a widening gap. And instead it shows a narrowing of the gap. Do you find these uh, results encouraging? And if you do, or don't, then let's talk about how you feed it back into your practice. Yeah, so I do find them encouraging. The reason I'm encouraged by them is because the results suggest to me that if we provide the proper mechanism to allow access to care by people in more deprived situations, they will take advantage of that. That's sort of what the overarching message is for me. And so from there, I've sort of translated into the practice in twofold. So like I said, I think there's a lot of challenges around the use of video and people that are from more deprived areas. So it, when I do provide telemedicine, I offer the option for a phone call. And I do try to supplement that with, in certain situations, if I need to, pictures or what have you. So specifically in my practice, I treat a lot of diabetic foot wounds. And you can imagine doing a telephone visit for that is not effective because you have to see the wound to be able to help provide care to the patients. But what we've actually started going now that I've seen that telemedicine can be very helpful for people in deprived groups is we're trying to provide access to those people with um, an actual wound uh, app that allows photos of a wound to be taken. And then whenever a patient is in some place that has Wi-Fi, so if they're, you know, McDonald's or Starbucks, it'll upload to some cloud, we can look at it. And then I can call them on the phone with um, some, you know, check-in questions and sort of advice moving forward. And then that helps us space out our in-person visits, which are actually very taxing on people, especially those in the deprived populations. So it's hard for people to come to clinic. You can imagine we have uh, medical clinics during the weekdays between nine and five, right? That's when people work. And people from deprived populations, it's really difficult to take work off to get there. Many of them don't have transportation or rides. They don't have family members that can bring them. So by trying to incorporate some of these alternatives 
alternative ways of keeping in touch with patients and spacing out those in-person visits to less frequent intervals, we're able to provide just as good care with a little bit less burden on the patients. As you tell this story, as someone who's the editor of a health policy journal, all I can think about is payment, payment, payment. So here's this change in payment policy that loosens up the constraints. But the common mantra of those who argue that we should move away from fee-for-service and more to population-based payment models is that the payer just shouldn't be in the middle of these decisions. That if you, as the clinician, are trying to do the best you can to take care of these patients, you're, you're going to want to use some combination of in-person, virtual, telephonic, app, and you should optimize for that clinically and you know for what works for your patients uh, without having to think well the reimbursement rate for a telemedicine is this and it, but if it's video only it's or if it's audio only it's that and the app doesn't get paid for at all do, do you find yourself in a situation where you have to think at all about the payment side or is that completely uh, someone else's job No, of course, we have to think about that. I mean, as physicians, part of what we do is we provide care, but we also work for institutions that, you know, they whether it's a for-profit or a non-for-profit institution, they still have to bill and, and make money to be able to manage and, and provide care for all the patients that we're taking care of. I love the concept of episode-based care models. I've been involved in a little bit of the development of that around some critical limb ischemia things and whatnot. I think it's absolutely the way that we need to move because it does give physicians a lot more leeway in how they can provide care to the best of their ability and the best of the way that the patient can receive it, right? Because not all care is really the same for all patients. And the way our current fee-for-service models work is that we're basically prescribing the exact type of care for every single person. We're saying you have to come to my clinic and see me in person so that I can bill and therefore give you the care. But some people don't need that. And in fact, you're actually putting a burden on them by making them come to clinic. And if you can provide care in some other alternative way that will allow them to have better outcomes with less of a burden, then I don't think we should be financially punished for that. So I think this is sort of the huge question and where we really do need to go in the future. Well, I think that's where we're going. The question is how fast and how to design it. And uh, and and those are all questions still uh, to be answered, but uh, but there's definitely exciting work going on in this area. Well, as we come to the end of our conversation, you've really inspired me with this uh, comment you made early on about testing your own uh, observations and anecdotes with data. And it just makes me wonder, what else is on your list of questions that you want to keep examining uh, to make sure that you're providing appropriate care and understanding your patients' uh, needs effectively or whatever else is motivating you to ask these tough questions? Yeah, that's a great question. So the model with the app and the telephone visits that I explained to you, I'm actually taking that into a study. So we have that starting up here in the next month. People are going to be randomly assigned to use this app in a mix of in-person and telephone visits versus just coming in for prescribed visits every two weeks or whatever it is that they would normally be assigned to, depending on the severity of their wound. And then we're going to observe um, both some patient and physician satisfaction metrics 
wound healing metrics and also some financial metrics to see whether, you know, this costs me more to do it where I'm trying to provide better care to the patients or whether in the end, because patients heal better and are less likely to no-show for visits, we actually end up uh, breaking even or even making money. So I think sort of that's a huge question and that's what I have coming down the pipe in the future. And that was all really driven by this project because it gave me some insight into the fact that the use of telemedicine for people who are from deprived groups could be really beneficial. Well, it sounds like a very exciting uh, initiative, and I also like that it's going to be a real randomized trial. Uh, Dr. Hicks, thank you so much for explaining this really important paper, for offering your personal insights and observations about how it affects your practice. Uh, Thank you for being my guest today on A Health Podacy. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you'll tell a friend about A Health Podacy. Health Policy is produced by Health Affairs, the leading journal for health policy research. The team behind the show includes Patty Sweet, Jeff Byers, Julia Vivolo, Sarah Kolk, and Sue Ducat. Like the show? Subscribe to A Health Policy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for listening, and have a great morning, day, or evening.